You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is our last episode of 2018. We've made it a full year, and I think I put out an episode every week except for that one that I was at Comic-Con. So I'm going to see if to, if 2019 can be even better, and we won't miss a week. Of course, that's not a guarantee, but I will do my best. But anyway, we're here today with an interview with Danny Fingeroth. Now, Danny has been a longtime employee of Marvel, dating back to the 70s, uh, and I'm talking to him today about when he was editing Spider-Man in the 90s, and this was spurred on from the recent 90s Spider-Man episodes that I did regarding the return of the Sinister Six and that kind of thing, so uh, check out that episode. Hopefully, we can get a round-robin episode going pretty soon, and, uh, and well, I'll play some clips from this interview in that episode there, because there is some great content here. We talk about Round Robin, we talk about Maximum Carnage a little bit, we talk about the creation of Carnage and the popularity of Venom, giving him his own series. Uh, we go all over the place there. We only really scratch the surface, so I'm going to have to try and get Danny on the phone again at some point in the future in order to get some more of these great stories. A couple of, um, a couple of things. There was a little bit of an audio glitch here and there, so there is one point where it cuts out that if you just give it a couple seconds, it'll come right back in. And at the end, when he's talking about what uh, he's up to these days, um, it sort of cuts out there as well. So we missed the beginning to telling us that he was one of the guys that was involved in uh, developing the Marvel Universe um, exhibit that's tra- going to be traveling around the world and is currently in Seattle at the Museum of Modern Art. So just uh, be aware that he was one of the, the key components in the creation of that ex- exhibition, which you should all go and check out. Um, so, yeah, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash thunderquack. Help support this podcast, keep it running, get a, some exclusive interviews, including one of me talking about how much I loved Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and how that movie is a game changer in terms of not only superhero movies, but animation in general and how incredibly well done it is. So uh, for all of you Patreon listeners, that's a special treat just for you. Enough about me. Here is the interview with Danny Fingeroth. Danny, can you tell me about being a group editor for Spider-Man and what that means? Like, uh, What does the, the term group editor mean for those who, of us who don't know? At a certain point uh, in the uh, early 90s, early mid-90s, you know, the Spider-Man related titles, there were so many of them that, um, 
and the same with the X-Men and with uh, the Avengers and X uh, and um the Midnight Suns. So, um it needed more than one editor to handle the title. So, uh, the group editor would be uh the person in charge of uh editing and we can talk more about what that means if you want, but in terms of uh, supervising the uh group of Spider-Man titles so it would be you know you have amazing Sp- uh, Spider-Man or uh, spectacular Spider-Man web of Spider-Man the adjectiveless Spider-Man book then any mini series uh involving characters like the Black Cat or a Night Watch and uh, then you have um one-offs like your annuals or special editions or graphic novels and then the, and then I think just Mainly because I had been the editor of New Warriors, New New Warriors, anything related to that came in. So I think at the peak uh, when I was running things, the Spider-Man group uh, had an average of uh, seventeen or eighteen titles coming out every month. Holy cow, that's unreal! Um, and is that complicated for you to to, to keep a hold of or uh, to organize? Uh, well, I had um, uh, two or three editors working under me. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't just uh, just me. It was, yeah, it was fairly complicated. I mean, that was sort of the job. We had all sorts of charts, and you know, there was. Uh, I think it was still uh, either either computer spreadsheets or or just uh, memos and emails. And um, yeah, uh, I, I would say it was maybe less complicated for the some of the spinoffs or the miniseries. You know, the the hardest one to keep hardest ones to keep track of the continuity would be the core titles that actually told the ongoing saga of the life of uh, Peter Parker you know, uh, as, as Spider-Man. Uh, you know, how to, how to uh, interlock uh, these stories or how to make sure they didn't contradict each other. Uh, yeah, so it, it was complicated. You know, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't brain surgery, but it wasn't nothing either. <laughs> right. Would, would you get together on a regular basis with the writers, like in a big group, to discuss the plan of action? Uh, yeah, what we would do would be we would, um, once a year, we would have um, the writers and the artists come in and uh, have meetings and throw around ideas. And, you know, I would, I, would, uh, I would always come in with some tentative idea where I'd say, basically I'd say, we, you know, we need to plan out a year of this character's uh, life and adventures and I have an idea here that uh, isn't all that good. But if we don't come up with something better, you're going to be stuck with my idea. So I sort of, you know, use that as a kind of uh, a gentle threat that, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they, they, they needed to come up with uh, something. I mean, I didn't, you know, A, I, didn't, I wasn't really worried that they wouldn't be able to do that. And also, obviously, if I thought my idea was really bad, I would not have brought it in. But, you know, the, 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 the thing is when you're, a writer uh, working on a, a franchise like Spider-Man or, or X-Men, you know, you have to to plan things out uh, just to keep things uh, coordinated and figure out any any if you, if you you know if you're going to work up to any big changes in, in in any of the characters, you have to start building towards that and interrelate the plots. So you know, if you are part of the Spider-Man writing team, then suddenly. Uh, you know, if, if there's an idea that's going to be going on for the next year or two years that you hate, then you're really going to be miserable, you know, unless it's something that 
uh, is something you can live with fairly comfortably. Um, so the so we have a, like a once a year thing with the writers and the artists, and um, I think uh, you know uh, we, uh, there would also be I think because most of the writers at a certain point were uh, all local to the New York area. We'd have like a monthly lunch of all the writers, which was really great fun, you know, um, because you're sitting around with a bunch of, like, smart, funny people yeah. uh, and, create, and creative people talking about Spider-Man, you know. And, of course, you know, uh, all sorts of other things uh, come up. So, yeah, that, that was what I was looking forward to that. Let's talk about the 90s. Okay. That was about the time Larson was wrapping up his time because he right. was... Uh, um, and did you have the decision to move him onto adjectiveless Spider-Man? Did I have the decision? Um... Well, Todd had uh, decided to leave Adjectiveless, so my plan was not so much to move Eric on as to have uh, a series of story arcs that could be collected into uh, trade paperback. So I, you know, Eric agreed to do that six-issue miniseries. It's actually a five-issue miniseries, but then he uh, his house burned down, which kind of put a crimp in his schedule. Oh wow. <laughs> that's if you look at if you go back to the original issues uh there are two where the spider-man story is just half the book or half the issue and then there's a um second story in each of those books written by terry cavanaugh and i forget the artist on it so yeah it was originally supposed to be five issues and it was six <coughs> so eric was the was the logical choice to move in he'd Eric had written a, a fill-in story in Adjectiveless for me, um, the one that that uh, had the uh, Beast as the uh, guest star. Right, yes. Uh, called The Mutant Factor. And I knew from that, and I also knew from his uh, Marvel Comics Present series that uh, he was a very good writer as well as a terrific artist. So that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and I think I think he really blossomed as a writer there. You know, I... Um, I guess I guess the Marvel Comics presents. I forget how many chapters that was. So in in that sense, that was a long form thing. But this was really a, a fairly complicated uh, long form story. So yeah, it, it, it was a it was a no brainer. You know that that whole era was when Image Comics was uh, starting. And uh, were you going to ask about that, or should I just? Yeah, sure. Going? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we yeah. can move into that. Yeah. Well, you know, look. Um, Marvel's uh, artists and writers and inkers, you know, um, not that the you know the inkers are artists too, but Mar- Marvel's writers, uh, pencilers, inkers were uh, eligible, uh, depending on the sales of their titles, to uh, get uh, incentives or royalties on the issues. And as you can imagine, with, with stuff like Spider-Man and X-Men, and just in general in that the boom era. Uh, there were there were some guys making a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that had been going on since the '80s when the royalty plan, uh, or I guess te- I guess technically it was incentive. I think in royalties legally it would be something else. Anyway, but since the incentives or royalties started, and um, what the people who were making a lot of money did in the '80s uh, and '90s. For the most part, was they, you know, they. I'm sure they invested, or they bought, you know, some of them bought homes, or uh, one guy bought an airplane. You know, I mean, they, <laughs> well. you know, they had nice lifestyles. What none of them did that the uh, image guys did was they said, well, 
you know, the image guys figured out, well, we're not going to be popular forever, right? I mean, comics is entertainment. It's a fad-driven business. You know, somebody is going to come along and be hot in, uh, you know, next year, in five years, in ten years. Let's think about our future and our family's futures. And they started a business. You know, they started Image Comics. Right. And, um, you know, became, you know, ultimately competitors to Marvel. So this was, I think, the thing that was unprecedented. So I think uh, uh, in Marvel editorial in general, uh, you know, other people's memories may be different, but, you know, there was a sense of concern. I wouldn't say panic, but I don't know if it was that far from panic because, you know, the top creators had uh, gone on to form their own company. And um, the books were still selling, and we had really talented people come to replace them. But, you know, the fact was they had gone to do their own thing. So this that was sort of part of the atmosphere of trying to uh, figure out both creatively and uh, in business sense, which in comics are interrelated, how to deal with that. So, uh, so you know, so Todd leaving and then Eric leaving uh, were part of that, and both those guys were, very, you know, and, and the other image guys, Liefeld, Jim Lee, of course, Wills Portacio, um, uh, Mark Silvestri. You know, those guys were also very smart to not burn bridges behind them. You know, they... You know, they pretty much all, with maybe the exception of Todd, have gone back to, at various times to do work uh, with and, and for Marvel. Anyway, that was, that was the context of the times. So I'm not sure when Eric announced that he was part of the uh, image crew. I think it was sort of in, all in the middle of taking form then. But I think by the time we got through with that story arc, it was pretty clear that he was not, uh, at that point, going to be doing work. Uh, uh, for Marvel, so so I don't I don't think I ever saw him as a permanent replacement. I think we you know I think I think um, probably I discussed this no doubt with uh, Mark Grunewald and Tom DeFalco, who were my uh, supervisors. Uh, that um, that the strategy for the Adjectiveless book would be uh, story arcs by, um, by by various teams of creators or individual, you know. Uh, or, or, or someone like Eric, who was both the writer and the artist. So that, that's, yeah. sort of, that's sort of what was going on around that time. Until Howard Mackey and Tom Lyle came around, then there was more of a consistent team. You know, that's true. You have a better... I guess you've been researching this more recently than I have. <laughs> yeah. But uh, let me think. Well, there was, there was Eric uh, did the, the uh, six-parter. Then there was some one-shots. You, know, you know, I think you're right by Jove. Well, you've just put the lie to everything I've just said. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, but what you said yeah. did uh, did happen. There were d- yeah. definitely several like short stories with specific creator teams. I think Don McGregor did a couple issues in there as well, and um, yeah, and then uh, and then it was a couple years later, I think, that Howard Mackey took over that book. Right. So okay, why well, we're both right? Yeah, that's yeah. I think at a certain point, again, I can't. It's, this is like over 20 years ago yeah, so, right. <laughs> you know more like 25 years ago um, yeah I, I I guess at a certain point we decided let's tie the book more closely into continuity and have it be a fourth Spider-Man title you know there's you know some of my favorite quotes from over the years have come from Tom DeFalco and there's um, I, it's funny I just recently relatively recently reading an interview with him where Somebody said, "Aren't four Spider-Man titles a month a little much?" And his answer was, "Not for someone who loves Spider-Man." <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, 
which I thought was a pretty uh, you know, funny but accurate uh, answer. You know, there was obviously a great love for Peter Parker and Spider-Man and, 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 and the various supporting characters. At a certain point, we decided that uh, adjective lists uh, should be part of the uh, main Spider-Man continuity. And, um, you know, up until then, it had been, you know, since it was initiated with, uh, with Todd McFarlane, it had been story arcs that, that could be collected independently uh, in trade paperbacks. And uh, after Todd left, I continued doing that. But at a certain point, again, I don't remember exactly how. So, yeah, we, we tied it in. And Howard uh, and I had worked together um, at various points uh, over the years. He was my editor on a uh, comic called Cyforce uh, in the 80s. And also right. he was my editor on Darkhawk for... Uh, quite a while, and uh, and just in general, we got along well. And I thought he was a terrific writer, and I'd really been looking for something uh, to, for Tom Lyle to do because I, uh, you know, I loved Tom's work and I wanted him doing something regularly. He had been uh, doing a lot of DC work and and work for some independents, and uh, you know, I think he I think he did a Spider-Man annual for me, and I thought he really did a terrific Spidey. So uh, and 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 uh, so I put them together and uh, on the uh, adjective list, which takes longer to say than you know the title of the books with an adjective. But that, <laughs> yeah, is, right that is how that that is how we refer, we refer to it in the office as adjective list Spider Man. <laughs> <you> nice. <know>? Nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so yeah, and 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 they got along well. So I thought they, uh, you know, so it, it it was you know an ongoing saga of Spider Man. Um, and yet each book did have, just by nature of having different creators on it, each book had a, a different look and feel. But that's especially where those meetings would come in. Uh, and I would, uh, a lot of time I would spend, uh, you know, we worked crazy hours. We can imagine coordinating all this stuff was, uh, it took a lot of time. Uh, you know, I had some terrific editors uh, and associates and assistants working with me. Uh, Eric Fine and uh, Mike Lackey and Mark Bernardo and I'm sure I'm sure I'm leaving out people uh, Rob Tokar, uh, Mark Powers, and I apologize to anybody I'm leaving out. But you know I put together a uh, very enthusiastic and and very uh, talented team of uh, writers and artists and editors. So you know it was it, it was a lot of work. But I so I was, uh, that was a long digression to say that I was. You know, I spend a lot of time just trying to figure out uh, how the books would intersect and what was coming out what week. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a... Uh, so you needed to have people working on a series like that who were also uh, pretty fast because they, you know, you didn't really have the luxury of missing uh, a deadline on any yeah, of the titles right. because it would screw up the whole time. You know, they had similar problems with the... Uh, Superman books, you know, similar challenges with Superman books at, at DC. It's like this one character, you know, not a team, uh, and yet the the stories are being uh, written and drawn by by four uh, different teams. So it was, you know, an interesting uh, ballet of uh, coordinating, you know, both stories and people and uh, you know that uh, you know I mean that I think I'd mentioned before during the. Um, the Revenge of the Sinister Six storyline, uh, Eric, Eric Larson's house in uh, California literally burned down. 
although he was actually always pretty fast, you can imagine that would have put a crimp in his schedule. Well, of you course, know? yeah, you understand. <laughs> he worked out of his home also. I mean, aside, aside from just the logistical and emotional effect of something like that, he, he you know, his studio was in his house. So. Yeah, wow. So, you know, you sort of, you know, you can plan, you know, everything you want, but then something like that happens and you just have to sort of scramble and, uh, you know, it mostly worked out. <laughs> That's good. Well, and uh, and you brought on Mark Bagley as uh, as penciler for Spider Man, who of course people know him as a, one of the main Spider Man artists through the '90s. And I, as so what I understand is, he got in the door through a tryout book. I guess he was. Yeah, there was a. Did you ever see the tryout book? I saw them. I always wondered if people actually did them and sent them in. Uh yes, I think it sold very well. They certainly brought it back. I think uh, maybe ten years ago. Yeah, the tryout book was kind of a structured way um, for people who yeah, were aspiring artists, um, writers, colorists. You know, Jim Shooter wrote it, and uh, I forget who edited it. Maybe he edited it too. But, yeah, the, the idea was a way for Marvel to make money, duh. But, I mean, also <laughs> to, uh, you know, it was printed on, you know, regulation, you know, on, on official size Marvel uh, artist paper, and, and, I, and I think probably on the same paper stock, as close as they could get it. And yeah, so, so Mark Bagley had, um, was encouraged by uh, a guy named Cliff Biggers, who was the owner of his local comic shop and uh, friends with Mark. And, uh, and I think he said, oh, Mark, give it a try, what have you got to lose? And, and uh, so he did. Yeah, he, he was the winner of that I think the winner of the Inker part was Mark Stegbauer. I don't know. So, and he also became a professional. Excuse me. I don't know if um, any of the other disciplines, you know, if any of the colorists or inker or, or, or um, letters ever uh, went pro. But yeah, it was a thing that seemed to work out. Both obviously, you know, for Marvel and well, Marvel in many ways, you know, making the money on the book and also finding a lot of talented pros through it. I think. I think it was a it was a structured way for people to uh, send their samples in, mm-hmm. and and for I guess whoever was vetting it, you know, in house. I'm not sure who was, you know, um, I don't know if Shooter looked at everyone or if somebody was kind of um, calling them and giving them the best ones. Honestly, I have no idea. But um, <laughs> yeah, Bagley was the winner of the of the trial contest, and then he had uh, been doing. Um, he did a. Um, I think he was the artist on Strike Force Moratory, the pencil on Strike Force Moratory, and then he. Did, I know he and I did a What If in the in uh, in the 80s. What if the alien costume had uh, taken over Spider-Man? Right. And uh, I did that as writer, you know, for uh, Craig Anderson, uh, the editor, and Mark uh, uh, Mark penciled it, and um, and then he was, of course, the the artist on the New Warriors. Uh, which I was the um, the founding editor of, so that that was um, the team on that was uh, Mark and oh, of uh, and, and and written by Fabian. Um, so I so I, so I knew. I mean, it's funny. This is one of those things where you know I'll, I'll uh, this is going to be one of those get off my lawn kind of moments, you know. <laughs> but in the days before email, you would. Obviously, uh, call uh, your artists and writers and everybody else. You know, I mean, either I would or my assistant would or whoever. But um, you ended up developing a 
different kind of relationship with your creative personnel and with their families, you know. I mean, it, it gave a different kind of relationship. You know, email is always prone to being misunderstood or or or, or, or having just a, an unintended subtext or, right. or, or just sounding a little cold or, you know, when, when you have to call somebody and then you end up also establishing a relationship with their spouse, it made for a different kind of relationship that I don't know if in the era of email and texting uh, and instant messages that that people can have, but that, you know, I almost felt, you know, and then I think Mark had a uh, a pretty young daughter then, so sort of watching her grow up and sort of she became part of the conversation and, you know, it... it, it, it you know, you sort of developed a relationship with uh, your creative team that I, I I don't know if 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 happens uh, anymore. And it, I mean, it's uh, you know, so so yeah. So Mark came on, and we became very good friends uh, as well. And through the new war, you know, the New Warriors is one of those books that um, nobody took seriously. Right. You know, it was <laughs> it was like it was four or five characters. Uh, you know, in in house at Marvel, there was a a, a spoof ad done for the New Warriors because you know you know as as you would imagine they were not they were not a they were not uh, except maybe Nova none of them were A list characters or hadn't been for years. Yeah. And so there was a picture of the New Warriors with the joke uh, tagline that said uh, Marvel Comics. If you didn't buy them, we couldn't print them. You know. <laughs> I mean, in other you know, in other words, it was like, yeah, you you'll buy anything, which obviously was not true. But you know, in those boom days, it sometimes felt like that. So it was a book that nobody was taking seriously. Yeah. Nobody expected it to be any good. So the fact that um, that it was written and drawn so well, and maybe edited halfway decently too, you know, was although Fabian and uh, Mark Bagley had both been doing work, before, you know, uh, before. This kind of put them on the map. It was this book that everybody thought would be terrible and uh, at best mediocre, and turned out to be great. You know, yeah. so so that you know, and and what it also demonstrated to me was that uh, Bagley was uh, incredibly dependable, not just talented, but you know, a guy who uh, hit deadlines. Um, so that's that's especially when you're doing interrelated comics like Spider-Man. Um, that's a very important thing. So, um, that, that, so, so when Larson, you know, uh, left also to go to Image, Bagley had been doing. Uh, I knew his, I knew his work obviously, and I also had seen him draw Spider-Man both in the story he and I did, and some uh, uh, one-offs he did for Salakrup and maybe some other stuff I'm forgetting. But he yeah, he was. You know, he was the logical choice. Also, I think if I hadn't hired him, he would have come to New York and beat me up. So, you know, I didn't want that. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, I mean, I think, we, you know, we had a relationship already. So, for me to go, can you step in? So, for a while, he did actually both New Warriors and Spider-Man. Whoa, no way. Yeah, yeah. And then I think, you know, uh, Spider-Man uh, uh, back then would go, uh, would be out twice a month during the summer. Right. So, I think it's... There at a certain point, I had to schedule a, a couple of fill-ins just to keep him from going crazy. Um, but again, that was all pre-planned. We, you know, it was rare with him that you'd have to scramble. You know, rare if never that you'd have to scramble with him to suddenly find a, someone to take up something he couldn't do because he 
you know, I mean, Mark was and is the total professional. He does great work. He does it on time. And if he's not going to be able to do it on time, he gives you plenty of warning. You know, that's, you know, that's the bane of an editor's uh, existence is not so much that people can make a deadline because people, you know, everybody has a life and, and things pop up that you can't foresee or they got if they want to take a vacation. But, you know, when people don't tell you there's going to be a problem, and you just kind of, they keep telling you, you know, the job will be in tomorrow, the job will be in next week. You can't do that in the age of the internet. That, you know, that, that's a big difference, too, you know. Right, you know somebody yeah. says to you, I'm working on it now. You can say, well, take a picture of it in emails, you know, and, uh, you know, send it, send it to me uh, an email or, 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 on, or on my phone. You know, you can, you know, you can, you can call their bluff. They can't say to you, I'm working <laughs> on this now. Don't you hear the pencil <laughs> scritching across the paper? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, um I think the question has something to do with Mark Bagley, but uh, I, I think I answered it somewhere in that in that rambling answer. Yeah, well, and he so he did the round robin storyline, the one with a right. ton of guest stars, and Al Milgram actually was the one who wrote that one. Um, did he come right. to you with that story, or did you tap him on that? Well, now we're getting into the deep woods of uh, of minutia of history. <laughs> okay. Let me see. David Michelinie at that point was the uh, regular writer. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember why, but I think David had some issue that was going to make it hard for him to make those, you know, those that that was the bi-weekly. That was when the book was coming out, right. um, you know, bi-weekly or semi-monthly or whatever. But that, yeah, that was the, you know, the every two weeks. So I think I gave him a break on that and let him move on to the next whatever the, the next stories in the book were going to be. I knew Al was a good writer or a terrific writer. I'd, I'd worked with him in the 80s. You know, he was writing Spectacular Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, I'd seen his writing in general. So I liked working with him. He liked working with me. And um, the Round Robin storyline was actually something I had pitched. So I came up with it but I was hoping to write it, um, and Moon Knight was so prominent because I was editing Moon Knight as well. Right. It hadn't developed as a thing for me to write, but it seemed like it would be a, a fun thing to do for you know the three summer months or the six summer issues. So I brought Al in and uh, said, "This is what I want to do," but. You know, I don't remember. You know, I don't know. I don't know how much I fleshed it out, but certainly Al did the bulk of the plotting, and obviously, and and all the scripting. I mean, it was it was really, you know, it was my basic premise that Al then uh, took and expanded, and obviously Bagley had the pain in the neck job of having to draw all those <laughs> all those guest stars. Uh, you know, but it did. You know, I'd say Al Milgram has uh, come up with some of my favorite story titles of all time. It was called Round Robin because at the time the Robin miniseries was very popular uh, at DC. Oh yeah. So that was sort of, that was sort of a little industry in-joke for anybody who, I mean, you know, it made sense in the context, but it was definitely um, a little kind of in-joke, you know, putting the word Robin in the title of the thing. You know, I I don't know if I thought anybody would be fooled into buying it because they thought Robin would be in it. <laughs> right. But if they if, if that happened, I wasn't gonna you know feel that bad about it either. 
Tell me a little bit about Venom's rise of popularity, because he, while you, you, yeah. he didn't appear during your, he, he didn't first appear during your time, your time as editor, but um, you're actually you're actually incorrect. I'll tell you why in a minute. But I just want to. Okay. I realize I was saying why why is it, I think I, I love this Daniel Milgram's some of my favorite titles um, of all time are by Al Milgram. One was um, that one a bit a bagel with Nova. If you oh, yeah, yeah. may recall, that was one of the titles of the miniseries, which, <laughs> um, you know, you had to sort of follow what Spider-Man was saying leading up to that title. So you had to, to explain uh, the title. <laughs> to, to explain the title. Well, I mean, it refers to, you know, Nova Scotia Salmon or Locks, but, uh, you know, in one sense, but, it, you know, since the character, since one of the characters in, the, in it was Nova, anyway, you're, you know, you're, you're, your listeners, if they're, if they're that interested, then I, I encourage you to go try to find the round robin series and just uh, look for that chapter. Anyway, and the other one, of <laughs> course, when he was writing US, when he was writing US one, he came up with the title for one uh, story that was transmissions from space, which that was pretty funny because US one was about outer space truckers. Anyway, <laughs> so Venom actually, uh, I was the editor during the Spider-Man comics that came out during the Secret War, the first Secret Wars uh, maxi series. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. And um, that was where the alien costume was in, you know, the alien symbiote was introduced. So Spider-Man had the black uh, costume with the white spider that um, that was uh, obeyed his thoughts until it didn't and tried to you know, take him over and so on. We knew the costume would be coming back. It was too popular not to bring it back. And we, you know, I think our original idea for it had been um, that it would take over different people. Um, and so it would, you know, it would have this uh, literal love-hate relationship with Spider-Man. Uh, then I left to go freelance, and over those years that I was... Um, Doing that, I was a staff freelancer. Technically, I was still an employee, but I was mostly working at home, writing and doing some freelance editing on the Marvel Saga. Mostly was the uh, was the editing I was doing. If you've ever seen that, in the intervening years, they um, made uh, the living costume into, into Venom and, and bonded him with Eddie Brock. So um, I'm sorry. So, so what was uh, I totally digressed? Whatever your question was, what was your question about Venom? <laughs> well, my question is: um, during your time in editing in the '90s, Venom went from like zero to hero. He was super, super popular. Um, now, is that something that you um, sort of fostered? Uh, did you foster that because you made him appear kind of several times, getting him his own series, or did you just embrace that and like, oh, Venom's really popular, let's stick him in uh, here and there because people will buy these books? Were you? I'm not sure how old you are. Were you? Were you buying the books at the time? Were you? Yes, I was. I I was about I was about 13 or 14 years old. Oh, so you were the perfect age. Yeah, I was the perfect age. I loved Venom. Although you didn't have a, an independent income. I, I had my allowance, oh, and I it? rode my bike to uh-huh. the comic book store and buy comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Venom, uh, yes, Venom was obviously popular. And, again, I think this might have come from um, DeFalco and or Grunewald, who were kind of doing a lot of the long-range planning for the entire Line and I guess maybe in consultation with my cops and publishing and you know other other people in the loftier executive branches. Uh, it was tricky, uh, so we knew. Obviously, yes, you know that's sort of the nature of the comic book business or any entertainment business. Something's popular, you try to maximize uh, 
you know, that popularity. The tricky thing about Venom was that he was a villain, um, but not in his, you know, well, no villain is, is a villain in their own eyes, but, you know, so so we knew he'd do a series, and somewhere in there, again, I, you know, it was decided it would be, instead of being an ongoing series, it would be a series of mini-series, honestly, because in in, in those days, and maybe still today, you know, a new number one was always sold uh, sold well and sold extra because people, uh, you know, wanted to collect them and um, invest in them or whatever. You know, it was, it was something. So if you'd have a new number one every uh, four or six months, and then it would also be a, a good way to have rotating creators and do a different story arc and get different people's takes on Venom. You know, Venom was problematic because he was a a villain who um, killed people. Right. You know, he was the dark side of the superhero. He was the dark side of Spider-Man. He was, you know, the return of the living suit, which had been popular, and that just that design, that black and white costume that had been designed by Mike Zick, you know, was uh, for, for Secret Wars. You know, all, all these kind of, it's like a perfect storm of all these things that people like, and yet the guy is a murderer, so how do we... <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I mean, and I think in the past they'd done stuff like supervillain team up, um, and I don't know if those, I don't know if anything featuring villains. I'm sure somebody can tell me how I'm wrong, but in general, I don't remember anything starring a villain unless you count the Submariner, who's the whole of the story. You know, um, right. had been had been uh, particularly successful. So, um, you know, it was the grim and gritty era. The Punisher and characters like that were popular too. And, um, you know, all this lady led to Maximum Carnage, and I know you want to talk about it. So anyway, let me, you know, an idea that I think that I came up with, that I'm not saying it was particularly brilliant, because it never really, I just, uh, but but we sort of made it work, I think, for the, you know, for the ongoing Venom series of miniseries, was, okay, if Spider-Man knew, Spider-Man's kind of a reactive character, as many superheroes are, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, even even though he goes out patrolling, you know, Spider-Man doesn't have an agenda to change the world. He has an agenda to, you know, stop villains and criminals and uh, and take pictures himself uh, and sell them to the Bugle and make money. Anyway, in the New York area, he'd spend every waking moment hunting down Venom. If he think, if if he, if Eddie, I think, pledges to him to be more circumspect in how he operates and he ends up on the West Coast. You know, I sort of, you know, I and we sort of gritted our teeth and went, okay, I guess Spider-Man is more reactive and he is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, if he was distracted by whatever three other villains he was fighting on a given month, you know, maybe it's credible that he wouldn't, you know, take a plane out to San Francisco and spend every waking moment hunting down venom that you know that was that was a way we kind of threaded that needle and mm-hmm. um so we moved venom to the west coast and then there weren't i don't know if there were many or any you know uh ongoing hero villains villains superpower people in san francisco so it gave us a interesting milieu to set it against um but that, that was that was how that came about but yeah obviously the character was super popular and, uh, you know, in his own, uh, as I said, you know, it's sort of axiomatic that no, you know, Dr. Doom doesn't think he's a villain, Magneto doesn't think he's a villain, no villain thinks he or she is a villain, you know, but Eddie uh, seemed, 
as I recall, in the in the in the miniseries, is only to be going up against people who were even worse than him. You know, <laughs> yeah. so that it it was it was a tricky thing. You know, it was it was an interesting era for superheroes in general. You know, um, the comics code was still in effect, and uh, it was only starting to change in that era that a hero might actually kill somebody, you know, in the in the um process of doing their superhero thing. You know, we you know, comics had always had this a uh, very unrealistic point of view that their heroes you know, most heroes didn't kill. And then suddenly the Punisher came in, even though he was technically a villain, that sort of changed things. Yeah. Uh and you know, and and, and let's face it, the even from the beginning you know, the Incredible Hulk as a character had to have been inadvertently responsible for thousands of deaths, right? <laughs> right Just yes. on, his many, on his many rampages, even though he wasn't looking to kill anybody. Yeah. Uh, and even though, luckily, many, you know, they had many, he had many battles in abandoned buildings were slated for demolition, you know. Nonetheless, you know, so that's sort of <laughs> one of the conceits of superhero comics. And, and, and in the 90s, that started to change, where suddenly, you know, a hero would have a life-and-death choice to make, and, and sometimes that would involve you know, I think I, I think now it's almost quaint. You know, you look at all the movies and TV shows, and even the heroes that are the most, you know, pure of heart, end up inevitably uh, with a body count. So, so, so then it was it was a little shocking or or um, uh, unusual to have a character like Venom, who, as I was, you know, uh, was technically still a villain, but have him starring in his own series. So, but but we. You know, we we were responding to the marketplace. People love that character, and obviously they love Carnage uh, afterwards as well. Right, yeah. Uh, Whose idea was bringing Carnage in? Carnage was in the works when I took the book, the Spider-Man books back over in in, uh, 1990 or 91, I think. So so Cletus Cassidy had been established as as Eddie Brock's uh, cellmate. Right. Uh, yeah, I think I think the, the the roots of that have been planted before I got there, and then you know, and then it just played out. That was sort of part of a plan that was uh, in, in place. The idea of the character would be that popular, well, it was, it was sort of interesting um, because then you could almost position Venom as, if not a good guy, then at least not as bad a guy as Cassie. So uh, the name for Carnage came from Eric Fine, who at that point uh, was my assistant, and later would become an, an editor in my group. Uh, who Eric was a great idea guy, coming up with uh, ideas for stories and, uh, and angles on characters and character names. So yeah, so the name Carnage came uh, from Eric, and, and you know I think pretty much everybody I think I think David Michelini liked it. I don't uh, want to speak for him, but whatever, whatever it was, it. Um, uh, that was the character, and then it and then it did give, you know, I mean that that kind of indirectly led to Maximum Carnage uh, a year or two later, right? Which which was one of those ideas that I came into the meeting with that that uh, I wasn't willing to relinquish because it. Well, we can talk about that when when you get to it in your questions. Maximum Carnage kind of rose out of the whole era and and the question of well, what is a superhero in the nineties if 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 we're now in an era where most heroes have somehow or other, you know, acceded to quote unquote reality and killed people, then what what is a hero? What is a superhero? What's a villain? What are these people like the Punisher? 
and Venom, and uh, I forget who else was in that was in that uh, mid, that kind of gray area group. Again, it was it was the the trend in the era. The X Men books have been doing these massive crossovers. I'm not sure if anybody at DC had been, but I, you know, we wanted to launch this new uh, Spider-Man Unlimited title, which has come out quarterly, and uh, and and do it with a big event. And uh, so, you know, again, I think I came up with the idea to have it start in Unlimited One and end in Unlimited Two, and then have it cover all the Spider-Man issues in between that but it was not brain surgery it was you know it was going on in the business and in the company and it just seemed spider-man should get in on that and it seemed a way to tell this uh this story that was relevant to the era in comics where where, where kind of the value system even though there technically was still the comics code uh the value system of what was a hero and what was a villain and that gray area was was a question I think on a lot of people's minds, you know. Um, so that was that was that was sort of how Maximum Carnage came about. But it was because we had, you know, this this whole issue that, you know, ve- you know, Venom in his own book does that make him a hero? And the answer is no. But then what is he? You know. Hmm. Yeah. Danny, what are you working on these days that you want to tell our listeners about? The Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibition that recently opened at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle and will be traveling around the world in the next few years. So that, uh, if that comes to a city near you or if you're in the mood to go to Seattle, it's a, I'm hardly objective, but I think it, it's an amazing, it's probably the most comprehensive Marvel exhibition ever done from starting from the Marvel comics in 1939 all the way through the current movies and TV shows. Wow. And I am writing a biography of Stan Lee for St. Martin's Press, um, for the Thomas Dunn Books Division of St. Martin's Press, which is the Division of Macmillan. Um, so that's been a fascinating process. It uh, That should be out sometime next year. So those are the two major things I'm involved with. That uh, exhibition sounds fantastic. I am near Seattle. I'm in Vancouver, so I will probably come and check that out. That sounds fantastic. Oh, you should. Oh, definitely. If you're in Vancouver, yeah, you have yeah. no excuse not to go there. Yeah. I, I lived in. I, I lived briefly years ago in Bellingham, Washington, which is midway between Vancouver yeah. and Seattle. I've been there many times. Right. So, um, I guess I'm familiar with the area in general. But yeah, if, if you're in Vancouver, then yes, yeah, you got to go see the exhibition. Well, and you're, you said you're going to be there at some point too. No, I I was there uh, when we were planning it about oh, okay. uh, a year or so ago, and then the uh, the premiere was uh, just this past April, so I was out there for that also. Oh, so I, didn't even I mean, realize. it's not it's not impossible uh, that I would uh, be there, but right now I don't have uh, any uh, specific plans. Okay, wow, <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I will definitely check that out. Uh, you know, it's put on by a company called a German events company called Semmel. They did the um, they did the uh, King Tut uh, traveling exhibition and a lot of concerts in Europe and uh, and America, mostly in Europe, I think. But um, yeah, it's if you're anywhere near Seattle and if you have any interest in, in Marvel or pop culture, you know, it's uh, yeah, you go run, don't walk, you know. Mm-hmm. 